following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. My name is Brian Tabb. It's a privilege to share God's Word with you today. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, we'll be reading verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, And Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. I've stood on the corner of 11th Street and 13th Avenue, right over here, many times waiting to cross the street between my office and the church building. I like to call it Sanctification Corner, since I sometimes stare for several minutes at the glowing red hand across the street and hear the command, wait, repeated over and over. And it's hard to stand there and wait 
for the crosswalk signal, especially if it's cold and snowing like a day like today. But I've also come to see this pause, this, this command to wait as a gift in my life, a, a regular reminder to slow me down and remind me of my need to pray as I'm rushing from one place to another. Waiting is a staple part of our lives. We've been regularly reminded of this reality in 2020, have we not? The COVID pandemic has forced many of us to wait much longer than we would have liked to see family and friends, to go back to work or school, to sing without wearing masks, to return to normal life. We struggle to wait, particularly in our society where we can get fast food, high-speed internet, real-time news, and on-demand entertainment. It's easy to grow impatient, anxious, or distracted while we wait. Acts 1, 12 through 26 shows us a powerful example of prayerfully trusting our sovereign Lord in times of waiting and uncertainty. We're continuing our sermon series through Acts, the church on the move. This book records the explosive growth of the church and the amazing advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ across every barrier of language and culture and ethnicity and social status and geography. But before the church can get moving on their mission, they must wait for the promised spirit. And they must also replace an apostate apostle. That's what our passage is about today. The disciples prepare for Pentecost by praying together, searching the scriptures, and appointing a twelfth apostle. Look with me at verses 12 through 14 where the church prepares for Pentecost by praying together. The risen Lord Jesus ordered his disciples, back in verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Then in verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus a question about the kingdom. And I expect they had even more questions. After seeing their Lord lifted up before them, And then meeting two angels in white robes. Questions like, what just happened? How long will we need to wait for what Jesus just promised us? When will Jesus come back? What will happen to us without our Lord? How will we accomplish this mission to the end of the earth that Jesus just gave us. In those questions, what did they do soon after Jesus went up to heaven? They obeyed him. They went back to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room, and they waited. And what did they do when they waited? According to verse 14, they devoted themselves to prayer. Several weeks ago, Pastor Jason called us to come to grips with Jesus' command to wait. 
here in verse 4. The disciples needed to wait for the promised spirit to empower them for their mission. And so they gathered together, united to pray. Not just, not just once, but, but continually. An ongoing pattern of prayer. The text says that all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Notice who was at this early church's first prayer meeting. According to verse 13, we see Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Eleven apostles. And they were joining with the women. This probably includes Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the other women who followed Jesus and supported his ministry and even went to the tomb and found it empty. They're also gathered with Jesus' mother and his brothers, who initially were skeptical or, or unbelieving, but by this time had, had come to faith and would in time be leaders in the church. This is the early church's first prayer meeting. And they gather for intentional, regular, persistent seasons of Godward corporate prayer as they wait. This is the only time in Acts that, that we have a list of all the apostles. Usually it just says the apostles or something like that, or it mentions one or two of them, like Peter and John. And this list reminds us of Luke chapter 6, where Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he calls his disciples, and then he chooses from that, that larger group of disciples 12 men. Simon, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There's one crucial difference between these lists of the apostles in Acts 1 and Luke 6, and it's the last name. There's only 11 mentioned in Acts 1. Why is that? Because Judas, Iscariot, the traitor, is no more. And that is the crucial problem that the church must address here as they prepare for Pentecost. So in verses 15 through 26, the early church responds to the problem of Judas's apostasy by searching the scriptures and appointing Matthias to take his place as apostle number 12. Why was Judas's apostasy such a pressing problem for the early church? I see at least three reasons why this was a pressing problem for them. First, it presented a credibility problem for these believers who were called to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem. Look at verse 19. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem what Judas had done. 
this was a major public scandal. One of Jesus' inner circle had betrayed the Messiah for 30 silver coins and then committed suicide. The people of Jerusalem knew about Judas's shameful deed and his shameful death. They called the place where he died Field of Blood because it was purchased with blood money and it was where Judas died. Remember that Jesus instructed the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. So their location is not an accident. And he also promised that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem. But how would the people in Jerusalem believe these friends of Judas as they bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus? So that's the first problem, a credibility problem. They also had an identity problem. You see, Jesus deliberately chose 12 disciples as his apostles. And that number wasn't random. It was deliberate because the number 12 in Scripture carries particular significance. It reminds us of the founding of Israel. The patriarch Jacob had 12 sons whose descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 apostles represent this restored people of God, the new Israel who were chosen by Israel's promised Messiah and who were following him and were going to make him known to the world. Jesus makes this connection explicit between the apostles and the 12 tribes in Luke 22 after he shares the Passover meal with them. He says, you men are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and here it is, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, Jesus promises the disciples that they will feast with him at the Messianic banquet and will also share in his rule over God's people. But how could they do this? How, how could they play this role as, as representatives of, of the restored 12 tribes and carry out Jesus' mission among Israel and the nations if they were only 11? This leads us to the third, I think, most pressing, deepest theological challenge posed by Judas's apostasy. Did Judas thwart God's plan? Or did he show that Jesus himself had made a mistake by calling him, of all people, as an apostle? All four Gospels uh, address this challenge head-on by identifying Judas the first time he's mentioned as the traitor or the one who betrayed him. Judas followed Jesus as one of his closest followers and friends. He heard Jesus preach day after day. He witnessed his signs. And Jesus sent Judas and other apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God to heal the sick, to cast out demons. He passed the bread and the cup to Judas on that Passover 
meal. And he even washed the feet of his betrayer. We should not conclude, though, that Jesus was a bad judge of character or that Judas foiled God's plans because of the rest of the testimony of Scripture. John 6 says that Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and he knew who it was who would betray him. Which is why he says to the apostles, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. According to Luke 22, Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal right before telling the apostles that they will judge the twelve tribes. The evidence in the gospel suggests that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he called Judas as one of the twelve. Judas's apostasy, what John Piper calls the most despicable act in history's most spectacular sin, the murder of the Son of God, Judas's act actually carries out God's deeper purposes. So look now at verse 16 of our passage. Peter declares, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter addresses this theological problem of the apostles' apostasy head on, saying that it had to happen, that it was necessary to fulfill God's plan. Peter here echoes Jesus' own teaching in Luke 24, where he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Or in John 13, where Jesus says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting Psalm 41. So in Acts 1.20, Peter then cites two specific passages of scripture to support his claim that Judas' apostasy was necessary according to God's plan. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be none to dwell in it, and let another take his office. The first quotation comes from Psalm 69, 25. May their camp be a desolation, And let no one dwell in their tents. Jesus and his first followers frequently quote this psalm, Psalm 69, a lament psalm of David, to explain the righteous suffering of Jesus, David's greater son. Just as David wrote, Jesus' enemies hated him without cause. Zeal for God's house consumed him. His adversaries gave him sour wine to drink at the the cross. And and he bore the reproaches of others. The psalmist then calls upon God to judge his enemies and give them what they deserve. In verses 22 through 25, we read, Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let let it become a trap. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. 
these are uncomfortable words for us to read. We don't often read uh, the imprecations or, 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 you know, prayers of, of cursing in corporate worship, but they're right here for us, uh, actually quoted by Peter to explain the most heinous sin that was ever committed and what to do about it. He turns to these, these verses from David's prayer. Jesus experienced betrayal and he bore reproach as the suffering Messiah prefigured in Psalm 69. And Peter also understands that Judas's shameful death in the field of blood is evidence that God has judged him as an enemy of the Messiah. There is a striking biblical parallel here between Judas and Ahithophel, who we read about in 2 Samuel. Ahithophel was King David's most trusted advisor, one of his closest friends, and he betrayed the king by supporting David's son Absalom, who sought to overthrow his father and take claim on Israel's throne. And David prays in 2 Samuel 15, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. The Lord answered the king's prayer. Absalom didn't listen to Ahithophel's counsel because God intended to bring harm on Absalom. And so the disgraced conspirator went out and hung himself. Judas's betrayal follows the same biblical script. Peter then quotes Psalm 109.8, another prayer for God to judge David's enemies who accuse and attack him. Judas matches David's description of the friend who, like Ahithophel, repays evil for good and hatred for love, who betrayed his Lord with a kiss. Peter quotes Psalm 69 to explain Judas's death as divine punishment. And then he turns to Psalm 109 for guidance on what they should do next. Let another take his office. This leads to the second part of Peter's speech and the community's action in verses 21 through 26. Peter explains from the scriptures here that Judas's shocking death fulfills God's plan, that his shameful death in the field of blood was evidence of God's judgment, and that another should succeed him in his apostolic office. And in verses 21 through 22, we see the qualifications of that person who would be numbered with the apostles. So, Peter says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Peter here stresses the apostles' role as witnesses of Christ's resurrection which reminds us of Jesus' promise back in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. And these witnesses had been with Jesus for years. They not only saw the risen Lord, 
They not only watched as he rose, ascended into heaven, but they had been with him during his earthly ministry, beginning with the baptism of John, continuing till his ascension day. And this quality of, of being with Jesus is something that the Jewish council even recognizes as they, as they see the boldness of Peter and John in Acts 4. They recognize that they'd been with Jesus. The twelve are not only witness, the, not, they're not the only witnesses in Acts. They're not the only ones involved in the spread of the gospel near and far. But they play a unique and foundational role. We see in chapter 2 that the church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. These apostles are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord, and they are called to teach and safeguard the truth about all that Jesus did and taught. And the gathered disciples respond to Peter's teaching in verses 23 through 26. They put forward two men who meet the qualifications, Justice and Matthias. These men were well-known. They'd been, uh, you know, following Jesus for a number of years. What do they do when they have two worthy candidates? They don't uh, take a vote. They don't, uh, you know, interview them, assess their uh, various strengths and weaknesses on their CV. What do they do? They pray to seek the Lord's guidance in this crucial decision. And this recalls for us, verse 14, where they're devoting themselves to corporate prayer day after day as they wait for Pentecost. So we see in verse 24, they pray, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. What an incredible description of the Lord as they come to prayer. This reminds me of 1 Samuel 16. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Here in Acts 1, though, I think it's likely that that they're addressing the exalted Lord Jesus as the one who knows the hearts of all. In verse 21, Peter refers to the Lord Jesus, and the disciples address him as Lord in verse 6. Lord has the same referent here in verse 24 as the disciples gather for prayer. I think this is important because it reminds us that Jesus is not absent after his ascension. He has been installed on heaven's throne and he is reigning as the king of heaven, active and involved in the lives of his people, guiding them in this crucial decision helping them as they prepare for what he has promised them. Then they ask the Lord to show them what to do. Show show us the one that you have chosen. This reminds us of verse 2 of the book of Acts where Jesus had chosen the apostles. And here again, even as they're discerning while Jesus is in heaven, They recognize he's the one that chooses. And they're submitting to him. And the way they do that is they cast lots. And then accept the result as confirmation of the Lord's sovereign choice. 
Casting lots was an accepted way of making decisions in Old Testament times. Proverbs 16 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. This is the only time in the New Testament where the believers cast lots, and it significantly comes before the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. Luke isn't prescribing here for us a step-by-step decision-making guide, but he's describing how the early church responded to this crisis and submitted to the Lord in this important decision. So, we've seen in our passage that the disciples prepare for Pentecost by praying together, searching the scriptures, and appointing a twelfth apostle. They wait in Jerusalem, as Jesus told them to. They discern God's purposes at work, even in the most heinous sin. And they trust the sovereign Lord to guide them. Bethlehem, it's easy for us to focus on all of the challenges and disappointments of this past year. But I think our passage today has at least two crucial truths that we need to be reminded of. First, we can trust God even in the worst circumstances. The believers in our passage recognize that God was not surprised by Judas's apostasy. They were shocked. They were confused. They were heartbroken that their friend and companion and coworker had done this shameful deed. It didn't make sense. Why would their teacher and Lord have to suffer like this? Why would Judas go his own way like this? But they understood that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. They recognized that God was at work accomplishing his plan, which was better than they could have scripted. The Lord says in Isaiah 46, I will accomplish all my purpose. And the cross of Christ is exhibit A for this glorious truth. And in our fears and questions and tears at the end of this challenging year, let's remember that our God knows our hearts. He hears our prayers. He is working for our good and for his glory. He is faithful forever, perfect in love, sovereign over us. Second, the sovereign Lord works when his people pray. As the disciples wait for the promise of the Spirit, they devoted themselves to prayer. To persistent corporate prayer. As they faced a huge decision, who should take Judas's place? What did they do? They prayed. They prayed to the knower of hearts, the sovereign Lord. Isaiah reminds us that the Lord acts for those who wait for him. And our passage illustrates this truth of God responding to the prayers of his people. The Lord works for us by hearing and answering the prayers of his waiting people. He works in us as we wait by sanctifying us and giving us grace to trust him more, to lean on his everlasting arms. He also works through us as we wait strengthening and empowering us as his witnesses to carry out his work in the world. 
Jesus taught his disciples that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Through prayer, we bring our requests, our cares, and our questions to our Heavenly Father and expectantly wait for our Lord to fulfill his promises in his time. Now, we are not in exactly the same position as these first disciples. We're not waiting for Pentecost. We're not gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. The Lord has fulfilled his promise and poured out his spirit on all flesh. But we're still waiting for Jesus' return. We're still waiting for Jesus to make everything new. We're still waiting. And we still pray, come Lord Jesus. We're not only waiting for his return, we're waiting for various things that we need or want. We're waiting for for healing from sickness. We wait for a spouse or a child. We wait for a better job or maybe any job. We wait to pack this sanctuary again and sing together. We wait for an end to COVID conditions and a return to normal. Bethlehem, in our waiting, may we be a people of prayer. May we humble ourselves before the Lord And we call to mind his precious promises and trust his wisdom when we don't know what to do. May our sovereign Lord work for us, in us, and through us as we wait on him in prayer. Join me in prayer. Oh Lord, what an awesome privilege that we have to call on you, our sovereign Lord, in prayer. It is a wonder, Lord, that you, you know our hearts. You know everything about us and you still love us. And you still call us yours through the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this reminder that you are sovereign over all. You will accomplish your purposes even in the darkest day of the death of your son. You were accomplishing your purposes for us and our salvation. Lord, remind us of this truth that you are sovereign over us and that you are at work as we wait on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.